This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is a friend of the show. You've heard from him one time before. In fact, we went on a lethal weapon tangent to end all lethal weapon tangents. He is the host of the Batman Land podcast. His name is Mr. Dan Barrett. Dan, welcome back to One Heat Minute. Look, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Now, when we were doing the last One Heat Minute, we talked at length about the Lethal Weapon movie. Yes. It's a passion point of mine. Yes. Did I explain to you my theory as to where they need to head with a Lethal Weapon reboot? No, you didn't. But but, but we and we and especially now we spent some time on it. In a in a time where not only has Lethal Weapon got a TV show, sacked the guy who played Riggs for being a complete maniac, yeah. and now cast Sean William Scott as Riggs, I think it's well well time to hear about what what Lethal Weapon needs to do to be rebooted. Yeah. First of all, let's get to that TV series for a moment. The worst thing, and I know you're a fan of that show. No, no, I Dan. I'm a gu- it, it is terrible. Sorry, you're a viewer of the show. <laughs> yes. Okay, I know you're a viewer of the show. <laughs> I am not, because I've you know, got a lot of things going on. I'm currently watching 13 seasons of ER. You're a maniac. Yeah, go on. In. I can't ever say anyone's a maniac after I do this podcast, can I? No, you've put the time in. <laughs> but no, uh, Lethal Weapon... There was the perfect opportunity to get rid of Damon Wayans, who I think is obviously the worst thing about that TV show. Mm. Terribly cast. I don't like Damon Wayans to begin with. I don't, with, I don't like Damon Wayans. And, nor, and I think what people drastically under, underestimate is just how good Danny Glover is in that series. Well, this is the thing. Like, you got the great Danny Glover in the movie, and you've downsized uh, oh, Wayans. No, no. Going from Glover to Wayans, is yeah. a, is, it would be like going from De Niro to Busey. How dare you? <laughs> As a huge fan of Point Break, I will not hear it. But you can't, like, they fired one guy from the TV show. Mm. Why not just fire both of them and recast both? Then, like, maybe I'd actually start watching it. Who then. we got? Who we got? Who do you Although, think? Although, in fairness, I'd come along and watch it if, like, Stifler's in there. Yeah, Stifler's going to make a few extra people watch but just to see what he can do. It's surprisingly good casting. I think it works. Yeah, he's, yeah. Got, he's got a, a bit of a rough edge and he's got a, a good sense of humor. I think he might. Ma- it's it makes more sense than getting a guy who was sort of seemingly serious dramatic and then getting Wayans who plays everything really softball. So maybe the making it a bit screwball with putting Stifler in there kind of makes it work. See, I think screwball is actually the wrong way to go for Lethal Weapon. Me too. Because every Lethal Weapon film gets worse and worse as it goes along. <laughs> yes. And they get more screwball as it goes along. True. You watch that first one, there's a couple of good jokes in it, but by and large it's a gritty police drama. Correct. 100%. They need to do this with the show a little bit more. Like... I don't think you lose the screwball. I think TV needs a little bit more sort of levity than the movies. But you know, anyway, the movie reboots, which I think is inevitably going to happen. It's going to happen once the TV show goes away. The movies will come back. And can I ask you just before we mm. get into the reboot? Shane Black starred in the original Predator, which I think is one of the greatest yeah. action movies of all time. Sorry, if not- starred in. 
Sort of. He had a supporting role. Yeah, he was. He was in this okay, cast. Sure, he was, sure. and he was actually cast uh, uh, for people who are fans of the of the movie. He was cast to come on to actually rewrite the script and didn't do much of that at all. Like he oh, really? basically, yeah, he he was he was hired by uh, from the behind the scenes in the producers going, hey, we need you to come rewrite this, and he was like, you know, no, you don't need you don't There's need me to rewrite. This. That's like eighty seven. So this is two years after Lethal Weapon. He's hot property. Yeah, yeah he, he's like the guy in Hollywood right now. The guy. I wonder, does Shane Black come back and reboot his own Lethal Weapon in, in your universe of him doing it? I don't think I'd want to see that. So no. Shane Black's moved on to many other great, great. things since. I mean, make more nice guys, yeah. make more uh, kiss, kiss, bang, bang. You know they were making a nice guys TV show? Really? Except instead of guys, they were going to be women. Okay. And instead of being set in the 70s, it's set like in 2018, 19. Oh, so why bother remaking it as the nice guys? <laughs> just call it something else. Thing? Call it something else. I think the cool... I think maybe why they did that is, and again, this is, you know, people who, who are reading about it is Shane Black conceived of the nice guys as something potentially he could go back to these guys in 10 years and do a show in the 80s and then go back in 10 years later and do a show, a, a movie of theirs yeah. in the 90s rather. So you're visiting these guys through the decades. And I think that's fun because both those guys would be very fun. It means you can have a nice little gap between the different films so that they can, you know, he can juggle them. Obviously, Russell Crowe and, and Gosling are two dudes who are in demand as far as, as cinema. So um, hard to get them both locked down again. But that that was a fun movie. I'm there for any sequel. Oh, but it makes no money, so that no. sequel's never happen. <laughs> kiss, kiss, bang, bang, though is still. Oh, I think it's a masterwork. It's so much fun. Starring Heat's Val Kilmer. Heat's Val Kilmer as fun. Gay Perry. Well, that's a fantastic segue to actually talk about Heat. Good segue. I still haven't given you my <laughs> Lethal Weapon theory. Go, yet. go. Okay, so Lethal Weapon. The racial politics of it are quite different in 2018 mm-hmm. than it was in like 84, 85. Yeah. Was it even 85? Am I getting my time? Maybe it was eighty-seven for Lethal Weapon. Let me have a look. Oh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to Google while you're. I'm going to say it's nineteen eighty-seven. But regardless, racial politics are different. So the original Lethal Weapon, you've got the seasoned African American cop. Yes. Who's like very sort of straight and narrow. He's sort of by the book. Whereas you've got like the sort of crazy like Vietnam War vet. Yeah, like, like v- v- the, that Vietnam. Uh, you're right on it. Spot on. It was eighty-seven. But yeah. I think. At that time, it almost felt like a couple of years throwback because it was still a, a guy coming out of the Vietnam War, which would have been 76, mm. um, you know, coming back home or even, you know, at the latest 77. So 76, um, 66, 65 is when it all sort of wraps up. Um, the uh, 75, rather, um, coming home and sort of having to re-ingratiate himself into society. Yeah, but I mean, he's already been around for 10 years. It's about a guy who's just still struggling to so, yeah. you know, find his place. But looking at like the politics today, I don't think you can really sort of have that idea of the straight and proper like African American guy with like the crazy sort of young white guy. No, I would actually flip the ages of the two of them, and I would have it as a sort of um, like Martin Riggs style character who's been part of the police force for years and years, and his sort of sloppy police work and behaviour is just being accepted because that's been going on. You bring in the young cop as the straight and prim and proper African American guy. And so you've got a guy who actually wants to play it by the book. Okay, he wants to actually be a good police officer. Yes. Meanwhile, you've got a guy who's been subverting that for his entire career, but allowed to skate by on the fact that he's just like an older white guy and so he can get away with that. Yes. He's done that for all of his career. And I think that'd be the interesting way to play around with that sort of dynamic. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see um, the wrestle between pulling them back. Like, do, does the young... Does the young um, buck who comes in and wants to go by the book in the African-American cop, is he able to write the ship of this old white guy or does, or does he sort of go off the deep end? 
But at the same time, like the whole idea of the movies is that they're friends. Yes. So obviously they'd have to, you know, form that bond very quickly. And, yeah. But yeah, it'd just be fun sort of seeing that sort of switch around a little. I think it would be. And a young, even a young family, and he's an old loner. Mm. Like a young, fam, fam, you know, young family man as well. That'd be, you know, yeah, definitely interesting. I mean, let, going back into the Michael Mann universe, I'm still desperate for them to go back and do another Miami Vice movie. I kind of, I'm not sure they always have an... I'm not sure we'll ever see another movie because that movie did not do so well. No. But I could see them doing it as a TV show again. Sure. And I'd like to see it more as a TV show than a movie. Yeah, but I, I, I'm desperate to see a Farrell and Fox, like those guys leading it. They've got such an amazing cast of that, that team. Herc from The Wire, Justin Trudeau, you know, Miss Moneypenny. Yeah. Um, it, it's not happening. I, I, that, that's what I want, Dan. That, I have to say goodbye. I'm going to yeah. say goodbye. So it's this like is how I want to see in 2018 <laughs> a revisiting of Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox with his cousin Jason Bateman together in the same movie. No, it's not going to happen though. No, it's not going to happen as much as I want it. No, but Michael J. Fox is still kicking around doing a couple of little cheeky, you know, performances within The Good Wife and stuff like that. So you know, um, we can all hold out hope. But one thing you're never going to get when Dan joins us for One Heat Minute is, is us discussion about the movie. <laughs> is us talking about heat at the beginning of the show. It will always start with a digression, which is why I love getting you on the show. So thank you so much for coming again. Oh, look, it is a pleasure. And we, we've got a, a sort of more serious and emotional minute that we're going to unpack here. We have um, Edie, played by Amy Brenneman, um, a stalwart of TV, which you're a huge TV guy. So I mean, she is like, you know, leftovers leftovers she's i mean judging amy she, she was, was the judging ju- amy she was a juggernaut show i always want to say that she's judging amy but then i think oh wait no her a- name's amy brenneman i'm clearly just confusing myself <laughs> no it was judging amy yeah now dan i'm gonna ask you a question if they were making a show where you were the star and you knew that you were going to be the lead person would judging you dan. would it be <laughs> judging dan would you be judging dan or would you change it to something else Look, I mean, I, I don't know how much power I'd have within the industry to say, hey, look, guys, can we change the name of the character? But also, judging Dan, I kind of feel like there'd be a lot of uh, consideration of, you know, what's Dan doing wrong with his life? Like, I, automatically, I just take the negative feeling on it. Yeah, like... concern that, you know, something's... What, what are people going to think about me saying judging Dan? It. I don't have the strongest of confidence. I can't deal with that. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> It's a lot of pressure, it's indeed. Too much pressure. Too much. But I'd like judging Dan to be a, you know, the people's courts, uh, Judge Judy-style oh, show. Great. Only because I know that's where the money is. Do you know how much Judge Judy pulls in each year? No. Like, she's doing, like, $50, $60 million because she, ha- she owns the show. Oh, my God. She produces, like, a whole bunch of those episodes back-to-back over a few weekends. Okay? Barely any, like, time throughout a year is spent making that program. And she is ex- insanely wealthy as a result of this show. Wow. That, it's, when you find... And, and that's why game show formats are so um, e- economical when it, when it comes to like uh, thriftiness and companies that you say, like, how does that show run forever? It's because literally they film Wheel of Fortune over like three weeks and they yeah. play 50 episodes. You know, they shoot 15, 20, 30 episodes a weekend and just like churn audience members in and out and get rid of it and it's done. I love the show Jeopardy. Yes. It's one of my favourite formats in the world. Good. Cannot get enough. Good show. And as you said, they filmed so many episodes back to back. I was in LA like close to a year ago. They were filming it about that time and I'm like, I'm like fine because they'll be filming it for like, you know, four or five weeks back to back. I'll get to see Jeopardy. The one day that (laughs) they chose not to film is exactly where I could actually go to Jeopardy. God damn it. It hasn't happened. God damn it. It's my white whale. Amy Brenneman. Amy Brenneman. 
Here we go. So we we are now, um, for those of you guys who are playing along at home, this is the 67th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. This is one of the longest digressions we've ever done before getting into the minute. So what I'm going to do is play the minute for Dan and I, and you guys can listen along, and then we're going to come back. And... He met me. Well, it happened without me thinking about it, which is why I probably... No, it's because you were fine. Edie. Take off with me for a while. Where? New Zealand. <laughs> when? I have to go separate. You could meet me there. But my job. My... I got money. You don't need money. You could set up a studio to work there. I don't know. What's there to know? Are you married? What? You come and go. The last thing I am is married. I'm a needle starting at zero going the other way, a double blank, and all of a sudden, someone like you comes along. You don't know me, Neil. I know enough. I've inadvertently brought you into one of the most, I think, romantic moments in this whole film. I thought that was like intentional. Because <laughs> I'm looking around the room, you got some candles burning. Uh, Before we started recording, there was a plate of cheese and some crackers. And, 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 and gently rubbing a rose on Dan's face as we're recording in a creepiest of all manners. But yeah. it, no, it's, a, it's um, one of the striking things around about Michael Mann, I think in a lot of his films, is he feels like a real romantic at heart. Sure. Like Last of, the Moh- Last of the Mohicans is ultra romantic movie. Um, yeah. Miami Vice has its romance. This has got its romance. I think deep underneath every sort of grizzled, gritty, you know, storyteller, like there's always going to be a sense of romance at play. And also anything that's dealing heavily with the ideas of crime as a genre, and Michael Mann, obviously crime is something he returns back to time and time again. Like there's always going to be a sense of uh, right versus wrong, sort of good versus evil. And within that, there's always storytelling. Of, like, there's always romance sort of within that. Yes. Even if it's not like male female romance, or you know, male male romance, female female romance, whatever. Even if it's not like a sexually sort of oriented romance, there's still often a romance that ex- exists between characters. Like, there's always a simmering sense of love that exists, even if there's a whole lot of blood and gunfights over the top of it. Yeah, and tension. I think you're spot on there with like. There seems to sometimes be a romantic tension or a tension of passion, you know, because you even if you're passionate about your your job and someone else is passionate about their job, it's like that intermingling of like shared passions and things like that that happen. I mean, but, it's like you know the lethal weapon movies. <laughs> two men that loved each other, even though platonic it's, platonic love. Platonic love. But, you know, it's, yeah. Now, this is an interesting scene of Heat in that the previous minute was also another very intimate scene taking place between yes. you know. Uh, the husband and wife? It was uh, Dennis Haysbert, who plays Donald Breeden, yeah. and his Lily, who's played by Kim Staunton. Are and they it, married or just... Uh, I, can't I don't think... Because her character name in the credits is not Lillian Breeden. So I think they're just partners. But she's, she's definitely... progressive. Which is very progressive. They've definitely been around, though. And I think in other minutes we've talked about, you know, he feels like he's been away in prison for at least a few years to have encountered Neil, for example. He's now out of prison and they're very, you know, very in a deep relationship. And then similarly, we've had back-to-back relationship men and women conversations here of different varieties of couples. You had Justine and Vincent who have their sort of very civil 
argument breakdown of their relationship. Yeah, You've yeah. got an extremely supportive one that happens with um, Lily and, and, and Don. And a couple of whom have been together like through it for like years. Th- like. Thick and thin, particularly. Yeah. She's been through him with, with prison and she sees that he's doing it really tough. And now we get to sort of almost like a very romantic holiday conversation, if you like, because it's these two have just found each other. It's new love. Absolutely, it's new love, and you can tell that throughout this minute, uh, even as he's upending their relationship, saying, hey, look, I want to go to New Zealand, so if you want a future of what we've got happening here, you have to come with me and dedicate your entire self to this. And she's still, like, those big questions in her mind of, like, are you married? Like, it's she hasn't really had the chance to really explore that yet, because this is literally, what, the second, third time I've met? Yeah, I think this is their... If we're, if we're going on the sequence of the film, it's like second or third yeah. that we're actually seeing them. It might, it might, be, it might be their second, but at, at the very least, it's the third. Yeah, and the way she's behaving in the scene, like she certainly doesn't seem like she's against the idea of it. No. But she needs to feel her way into this relationship a little bit more. It is weird. It's like yeah. a second date, move with me to a foreign country. Mm. But even so, like from the first time we meet her in that diner, there was that sense from their relationship that she wasn't really happy with what's going on in her life. Like, she is certainly someone who'd be open to the idea of just throwing everything in and following, like, a new romantic prospect. Yes. Like, to the other side of the world. Yeah, maybe. Like, she's clearly open to it. She's, she's open to it. And, and, they're, and they're in, like, a really tender embrace. She's holding his hand. She's kissing him. They've talked about... Um, and, and in the lead-up to this, in the, in the preceding minute, they're talking about how she was having trouble meeting people, how she was having trouble finding someone in the city. And, mm. and he sort of like right at the end, right, right at the end of the last minute and sort of leads into the first response of this minute is she's like, yeah, well I met you without having to think about it. Like I saw you in a shop and then it was a sort of an unexpected meeting. Um, and so that's how they became connected. But as you said, she's like lonely. She's trying to meet someone. She's, you know, the, the city is foreign to her. Yeah. Cause she's moved from, it's like Midwest America somewhere. Midwest. Yeah. In fact, she says her family is from the same place that the characters in last of the Mohicans are set. Okay. It's a little like, this is Michael yeah. Mann being as close to an interconnected Tarantino universe as he can. Uh, when are they breaking up the, uh, what is it? Red apple cigarettes? Yeah, the, no. The, yeah. I think it's red apple cigarettes. No yeah. red apple cigarettes. Disappointing. No, no. Uh, Oh, what's the what's the brand from uh, um, Clerks? What's that? Is that Red Apple? No, that's not Red Apple. That's um, something else. I'm not sure. I yeah. mean, immediately I just go to like the X-Files and the Morley cigarettes. <laughs> yes, Morley, bless. Um, but no, so, you know, she's, she's moved in from the Midwest and she's just found this guy. Yeah. Oh, you got me caught now on the cigarettes from the uh, Clerks viewer universe. Viewersk- Look, grab your phone. I'll vamp. I can vamp, Dan. No, no, you know, no, no, I, I can't. It's just giving in. Uh, us, us podcast experts can vamp. People can Google that themselves. <laughs> You've been given homework assignments while we're doing this my, podcast. My problem is if I start thinking too much about the Kevin Smith movies, Kevin Smith, who's blocked me on Twitter, by the way, but that's a side point entirely. If I start thinking about it, I'm going to be likely to go home and probably watch Clerks, followed by Morats and Chasing Amy. And then I'll want to keep watching and then I know what comes later. So I just, I just get sad. Yeah, I, I'm not sad. Are you going to tell me that Clerks 2 is a great movie? Because I've known people like you, Blake, and <laughs> I will not hear it one bit. I really like Clerks 2. Oh, you're, you're the worst. I really I know, I am. You're a terrible person. <laughs> I really like Clerks 2, and I, and I love Red State. I adore Red State. Red State was surprisingly good. It is very good and extremely underrated, and I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people punished him for be, having a sort of dark 
Tarantino Coen Brothers flavored movie in some of his style, and I completely disagree. I I saw it uh, at Radio City Music Hall at a premiere in New York City with a whole yeah. rabid crowd of people. Um, and was I was that part of his tour. He was it was the, the yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the premiere. I was there for it, and it was just amazing. Um, I really loved the film, and I've watched it many times since. And it, and you know, you obviously have to step back and be a bit objective when you're a big premiere because those things can sort of be. Fun, much like I did with Magic Mike XXL. And let me tell you, folks, it was rewarding when I watched it at home too. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just loved it. I thought it was amazing. And um, that's, that's one of those later ones where people sort of talk down to it. But I think it's an incredible film. No, I think that's a fantastic film. It's probably definitely, as far as like legitimate filmmaking goes, it's the most legitimate movie he made. Definitely. And it's very, you know, got a, a really hard political edge and it was timely and it just seemed to you know, fly under the radar because the, the, the establishment at the time were really pissed at him. Yeah, however, like, clearly it was the last gasp he had of filmmaking because he used all of it within himself to get that on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Because everything that's come after that is it's unwatchable. Not fun. Yeah. I mean, I think, the, I, think, I think the first 20 minutes of Tusk are watchable and then it's just off the radar after Man, that. Man, I struggle with that first 20 minutes. The, uh, everything is crazy after that. And uh, Yoga Hoses was just, wow. Yeah. I never bothered. It was, it was crazy. Don't, don't bother if you're that <laughs> angry about it. Um, but yeah, so back to Heat though. Mm. We've done our best to digress. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I thought was kind of noteworthy and I got to thinking about the fact this is what, 95 that Heat came out. Yes. He talks about going to New Zealand, okay, which I think if you're on the run from, you know, the authorities and your life, I think New Zealand's a good place to end up. <laughs> yeah, great. Like just in terms of the logistics of you've started a whole new life, you're always going to seem a bit like an outsider there, but people aren't really going to put two and two together. No, they're not going to be... Because the they won't know. At, in 95, they're not Googling yeah. LA crime. Even, to, like, even, even today, today. Like, you could potentially do it. Like, if you ended up in New Zealand... There's no way that anyone's going to go, oh, well, you know, you're that obscure, like, thief from Los Angeles. Like, you're just not going to connect. No. However, the thing with the difference between 95 to 2018 is I don't know how, as a, like, known felon escaping the law, especially after, you know, the big shootout we see in a little while, like, that is a, you know, it's a memorable police incident. Absolutely. I don't know how you get out of the country anymore to get to New Zealand. No. How do you do that? I, I... I think that that's what's so of its time about this. It's like he would never have been able to plan. And that's what I'm not clear on at the end of the movie around their exact plan of getting out. But like it would be something where he would have had to immediately be out of Los Angeles, be trying to get down that, you know, to the Southern border, which now would have been a feasible thing for them to do. So the border police might've got him. So he would have had to have to get out of Mexico then with new identification, travel from Mexico to another country and sort of make his way out of there. And for some context as to why both of us are kind of thinking about this, there's a lot of conversation at the time of recording about the immigration laws in the US and the border security. So this morning there was a story that I read about a jogger from Canada. Like it was just young, a young woman. She was, (laughs) she was a person of color going for a jog and she got detained by police because she was over in the US and they're like, what are you doing here? And she's like, oh, I just went for a jog. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she's been like in custody for like two weeks and just got released. Yeah. Okay. Terrible it, story for and her. And Malcolm Gladwell, if you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, um, uh, his uh, um, Revisionist History podcast, he mm. talks about as a young kid in Canada going to a diner, which 
for them, they jumped a, a, a small like paddock sized fence. Yeah. They went to a diner and then they got arrested in the, in the States um, and, and asked what, how they got to, across the border. And then the cops drove them back to the border and threw them back over the fence and said, see you later. Um, and Could he, they at least finish their chips on their plate? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think, I don't know if they'd finish their chips or what, but it was just like, he's like, I actually got arrested. That was my first time ever in the United States as a kid. And we got arrested by border police. But at the time there wasn't like a wall. There was just a paddock fence between two countries. How did they get busted? Were they just sitting around talking about Degrassi? I think that's it. I think they're talking about Degrassi. They're talking about um, they're talking about Rick Moranis and what a hero he is, and, yeah. and it was all over from there. I'm trying to work out now how old Malcolm Gladwell is because I think he's well too old to be talking about that. Yeah. However, border security. You know, like I'd imagine, like maybe you get by jumping like a few borders into Canada or maybe like, I don't know how you get into Mexico anymore. Well, yeah, I mean it's really tough at this time. But you know, this is this movie. You know, in a post 9/11 world, forget yeah. about the current border climate. You couldn't make the end of this movie. Mm. It, you know, even six years later, you can't make the end of this movie. Yeah. Because they're never letting you on to LAX to shoot a film, like unauthorized personnel. They're never letting you near flight paths. They're never letting you in those hangars to shoot those things, at that, at particularly at that big airport. A lot of stuff you see now is at private air hangars and stuff like that. They can do little snippets or they might be you know, now in a, in a flight tower or something like that, but it's all extremely controlled. They would have, you know, the amount of money that it would cost to even just conceive of this ending. Right at this time, it's totally conceivable, totally doable. But they're just talking about each other's dreams here. Um, and and I, what's so funny is they're sitting out in this, you know, beautiful, picturesque evening. She's looking at him going, you know, I didn't think about, you know, I didn't think about it with us. She's being so tender, holding his hand, kissing him. And... I love how you said the right thing there. She hasn't even had a chance to ask him whether he's married. Yeah, and it's clearly on her mind. Yeah, because she's like, I'm kind of, if this is a fantasy, yeah, this is kind of a fantasy. So let's see what happens from there. I have to say, like, while I like the movie, the one thing that doesn't quite work for me is her. She seems too much like a dream girl. Like, she doesn't really seem like a real character. She just sort of seems a little bit too perfect. She's a writerly convention rather than just being like a legitimate character, I feel. Yeah, uh, I see. I mean, in fairness, she's also the only character in this that's operating outside of being connected to the characters and the world of crime and yeah. the darkness of Los Angeles. So, I mean, I can appreciate she's supposed to seem a little bit ethereal and exist as an other, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like she's really got any context or layers to her. Yeah, I, I, I can see where you're coming from there. I think one of the things that I always wrestled with her and I've kind of had a bit of an evolution with Edie's character is with Neil I w- and it was less about her as a character uh, as in like you know she just feels like a bit of a, a hippie artist who's living in LA and someone who's come out here for her dreams and they're maybe not being realised so it seems if anything for me it seems a bit like an archetype but the thing I always struggle with Dan I think you sort of touched on the similar notes is I always was wondering is Neil being legit because I could never in my gut be satisfied that like, is Neil actually being legit with her? And when he's saying, I want to move with you to New Zealand, is he deeply lying to himself or is he sincere? And I think in Michael Mann's mind, especially in researching this podcast, in his mind, Neil is being sincere. Neil's being a romantic at heart and he really wants this. She's like, you know, I think I've, I've talked to some people on the podcast, talk about like Edie is the island um, that you know Jamie Foxx's character has in Collateral, that postcard of this is my fantasy, and that's exactly what she is. She's the other, she's the fantasy. Um, but I'm I always wrestle with his motivation with her and whether it's actually 
legitimate. No, I think he's totally being legitimate. And I think for her at this moment, she's thinking about it as like, yeah, maybe I could actually go with this guy. I need to work out some things about this guy first. But yeah, like I'm open to it. Yes. I think in this moment, both of them are. But I think that while both of them are equally into it in this very second, they could easily wake up the next morning and go, what am I thinking? Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's nighttime talk. Like, this is a, like a real thing. Um, and then, like, maybe even a week away, like, suddenly they just have a change of heart and then just go, oh, that's just silly and move on. And they wouldn't necessarily feel like there's any sort of longing, like a panging loss at all in their lives. They just get on as like, oh, that was an interesting couple of weeks, ready to move on. Like, I think they mean it right now, but, like, how deep is that as, like, an actual emotional desire that they have and what's actually maintain it? What's really funny where he's like, this is what I love about the authenticity of Neil's character here and, and, and Daenerys' performance is... She goes, are you married? And he looks at her and goes, like, there's a great, like, like puzzled expression here. She's like, are you married? He's like, what? And, and, and then when she's like, are you married? And then he has the sort of audacity of like, we're going to be in a relationship where I'm asking you to drop everything. Leave with me to go to New Zealand. And when you ask if I'm married, I'm like, no, I'm a zero, like, I'm, I'm a zero double blank going the other direction. Um, like, as in. I wonder if I would be so emphatic, like, I would never be married. Because it almost sounds like he's like, I would never be married. See, I never really quite read it as that. I thought it was just a little bit more that he'd sort of come up with this idea of, yeah, she could come with me. Like, this is going to be perfect for what I need in life. But when she says, are you married? Suddenly he has to, like, reconcile the idea that she actually wants to know stuff about him. And it's not just him getting stuff from her, but rather there might be a give and take in this relationship. Yes. And up until this point, I don't think he's actually really considered that maybe he needs to give something of himself over because she probably has questions. She probably wants to know where he's coming from. <laughs> yes. And to his mind, like, that's irrelevant because he knows where he's coming from. Yes. So, like, what does she need to know for? Like, it's <laughs> ridiculous. What do, you, what do you need to know this for? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, like, it's it's it's... It's just a, it's a great scene because um, it's a great scene in amongst multiple scenes here where you, you're, you're carrying a thread of different male and female relationships and different dynamics. And I only just cottoned onto it as I spoke to you before, Dan, is like, like I said earlier in the podcast, and I just thought I'd bring back is the Wayne Goran prostitute scene is the dark is like a, a dark ending of a really heinous and, 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 you know, very basic transaction. And then you, you transition to the next conversation between a man and a woman in this movie and it's a very civil, very calculated conversation between two adults who kind of know that it's the death knell of their relationship. And then you've got this beautiful and tender relationship that has gone through some serious rocky periods with um, Don and, and Lillian and... That Lillian's doing whatever she can to support him to sort of get him over that hump of like, you know, that sort of tragic post-prison system life. And then here it's a holiday. Like it's such a fun little like um, happiness. And so it's almost this like entire spectrum of like pure transactional, really tough truth, you know, truth telling in relationship, super uber supportive. And then you've got this like burgeoning, you know, you know, innocent, lovely. And then, the next big conversation that happens in the movie is Pacino and De Niro sitting at a coffee shop together, like in a sort of confessional style, like strangers talking to one another. Yeah, there's something to me about this scene as well, because they're both in Los Angeles. And obviously LA is a big movie town. It's the sort of area where dreams come true. 
And it just seems fascinating, the idea of these two sort of looking out over the city where you yeah. know, you've got that sort of... It's a dream factory city. Yes. Okay, and like they're actually kind of buying into that dream in a way the rest of the film doesn't really quite permit. Yeah, that's great. That, that, that's absolutely true here. And those, those hazy lights of, you know, coming to LA and dreams being found and destiny happening is is only present in the moments where they're at Edie's place, you know, yeah. up, up away. And also ironic, because for her, that's never really happened. No. And it's not like she's there to make it as a movie star, but she was still kind of there for that better life that's sort of associated as being part of that town. Yeah, the, the, she's realising her destiny of being an art, an art major, an art student there. Mm. Well, Dan, I think we're just going to let these candles burn. We're going to let the haze of these lights and, the, and eat some cheese here together. Thank you so much for being a part Why of... Why are you rubbing this rose over my face again? <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Once again, you can find Dan at, at the Dan Barrett on Twitter um, and definitely on Batman Land. He's still fighting the good fight. So Batman Land, for those who don't know, uh, it's a podcast about the 1960s Batman TV show. Great. What more relevant a podcast in 2018 <laughs> could you be looking for? Exactly. If, you, if you're looking for relevant podcasts and you've stumbled upon the 1995 crime opus, Minute by Minute Heat, One Heat Minute podcast, stumble in back in time to the 60s. I've been blessed to have been a part of uh, Batman Land twice. Yeah, I was going to say twice now. Twice, yeah. yeah very, very excitingly to we'll, be... We'll try to get you back before we wind this thing up. Oh, please do. I'd so love to... Right now, because we've been looking... Because uh, So in my day job, I work for SBS. Yes. Which is a broadcaster in Australia. We picked up the Batman TV show because no one else was really after it. <laughs> and we just thought it was a great way to fill like an early evening time slot people discovered it because it hasn't been on broadcast TV for, for years you know, like 20 years 30 years at least I, I think you and I probably watched it on TV the last time it was on TV yeah yeah easily, easily. it's been on Foxtel a cable station here yeah. but it's not no it's not, it's not the same okay so people are just discovering this show and like we've reached season 3 now of the program where the say, budgets are <laughs> there is no non-existent it's basically black box theatre with a few <laughs> props around the place yep the show's ridiculous uh, on Tuesday, I'm going into work where we're recording an episode where Batman challenges the Joker to a surf off. Oh my God, I like, love you know, that episode. It's, it's obviously in both the worst and greatest period at this time. Uh, of the show. Well, look, um, all the best in this final third season to not put a gun in your mouth because it is, it is, it's such a tragedy because Bill Dozier and the team who brought this show to life in the first series had gargantuan budgets for their time and sets and actors and had people clamoring to be a part of it and it kind of really dies on on bad story and really even more crazy outlandish things in their final series just to bring to heat for a moment i don't know much about the production of heat but like obviously there's a lot of external location shooting in los angeles almost all i don't think i think it was 170 locations do you know if there was much shooting on the warner brothers lots no None. There was none? No, all location. Okay, because what's fascinating watching the old Batman TV show is that they use the Warner Brothers lot like, to a considerable amount. Yes. Like, you see them driving up and down like the same two <laughs> or three streets at the time. Yeah. But those same like streets are still in operation today. So you watch modern-day Warner Brothers TV shows and movies, and you still see a lot of those streets. You still <laughs> see like, the same like, facades. Like, it's phenomenal. Like, it's this street that's just caught in time. I mean, most streets actually kind of look the same in, like, major cities. 
Yeah, yeah. It's sort sort of. Like, they hold the same look. It it's really depends on the buildings. But with Warner's, it's like the streets stay the same, and the, then the dre- the set dressings on the side might slightly change. Absolutely, a few different posters around the place. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being a part of the show, guys. If you want to check that out, make sure you subscribe to Batman Land as well as One Heat Minute. I've been your host, Blake Howard. You can find me and everything that we're doing on the show at OneHeatMinute.com. Um, thanks to Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our theme song, and thank you, Dan, again for being part of the show. Thank you, sir.